0: Hello, I'm Matt Kelly, founder of The New European. If you like The New European podcast, you're going to love The New European newspaper. Unique content from people who love being European as much as you do. A different take on current affairs, bringing insight to untold stories from within our continent and explaining how they shape our lives. And page after page of fabulous arts and culture coverage from across Europe. It's witty, entertaining and when it drops through your letterbox each week, it's going to remind you that a strong pro-European community is alive and well in this country we love. It's on sale at newsagents every Thursday, but make sure you don't miss a copy by subscribing. We've got a special time-limited offer just now. Go to theneweuropeancouk forward slash subscribe and you get the newspaper delivered every week anywhere in the UK for just £10 a month and you also get full access to our e-edition. You're going to love it, and you'll be supporting great journalism. Thank you, and enjoy the podcast.
1: Hello. Hello again, Snowflakes, and welcome to the New European podcast. It's a British eye on European politics and culture from the people who bring you the New European newspaper. You can subscribe to the New European at the neweuropean.co.uk slash save. For £10 a month, you get the printed and e-editions every week. The first 200 people to subscribe will also get a signed copy of the latest volume of Alistair Campbell's diaries. My name is Steve Anglesey. This week, we'll take in David Cameron and the lobbying scandal, what that means to Boris Johnson's government and how it damages our faith in politics we'll look at new polling that shows whether remainers faith in the eu has been shaken by its failures over vaccines and we'll be looking ahead to may the 6th and wondering what kind of factor the lib dems could be especially now Ed davy is stridently opposing vaccine passports and what he says uh, would be a two-tier britain as a result and where's where's keir starmer in all of this too I'll be discussing all of this with two of the best minds in political analysis, the pollster, Peter Kellner, and the journalist, Steve Richards. And then I'll be putting more bad politicians in the hall of shame. Now, let's kick off with the Greensill scandal that's once again shed light on the revolving door between government and lobbyists. It's actually more of an open door when the person doing the lobbying happens to be the former boss of the party in power. And, you know, who'd have thought that the pig thing would only be the second most embarrassing thing or even the third most embarrassing thing with Brexit that David Cameron's ever been involved with? Unless we forget that after the expenses scandal, 2009 that was, David Cameron said political lobbying was going to be, and I quote, the next big scandal waiting to happen. He said he was going to reform, and I quote, the far too cosy relationship between politics, government, business and money, which he said... And I'm going to quote him again, had tainted our politics for too long. Here's another quote from Cameron. We're going to make absolutely sure that ex-ministers are not allowed to use the contacts and knowledge gained in government for their own private gain. Well, there are 21.8 million reasons why that uh, might not be true. A very, very good uh, PMQs for Keir Starmer on Wednesday, in which he said, every day there's more evidence of the sleaze that's at the heart of this Conservative government. The Greensill scandal is just the tip of the iceberg. Dodgy contracts, privileged access, jobs for their mates. This is the return of Tory sleaze. And then there was this thing that he said as well, Keir Starmer, I couldn't help, it couldn't help reminding me of, of something else.
0: Dodgy contracts. Privileged access, jobs for their mates, this is the return of Tory sleaze. Mr Speaker, it's now so ingrained in this Conservative government, we don't need another Conservative Party appointee marking their own homework. Actually, Mr Speaker, the more I listen to the Prime Minister, the more I think that Ted Hastings and AC12 are needed to get to the bottom of this one.
1: Mother of God. Uh, He's not great at jokes, is he? But where could Keir Starmer have got the idea of AC-12 arresting Boris Johnson? It sounds like a good idea for the front cover of a weekly newspaper about European politics to me. Well, let's get the view now of the pollster and commentator Peter Kellner, familiar to us, of course, from election nights down the years, and now for his Politics Corner blog at kellnerpolitics.com. Peter, you've got some fascinating polling in the New European this week, which shows the extent to which Remainers have had their uh, faith in the EU shaken by the botched vaccine rollout. First, with looking ahead to May the sixth, I-, I wanted to ask you what you think the impact of GreenSill is going to be in in voters' minds uh, when they uh, when they fill in their, their, their cards uh, in a couple of weeks. Uh, will the conservatives be really worried about this is tory sleaze still a, a very powerful image for voters do you think
2: right well well, well no in what about three weeks time um, my guess is that it probably won't have that much impact in the short term but the the real question which we can't answer yet is what the impact will be over two or three years time let me take you see down memory lane for a moment um In the um, early to mid-90s, when John Major was Prime Minister, uh, he in the end suffered from a whole lot of some minor but tawdry sleaze scandals, after he had said it's time to get back to basics on personal morality. And it took a while for these scandals cumulatively to affect Major, but they did in the end. and then in 1997, Tony Blair becomes prime minister. And very soon afterwards, there's a bit of a, a fuss over, um, for those few people who remember it, Bernie Eccleston cigarette advertising Formula One. Without going into the details, it was as if Tony Blair had acted a bit hypocritically on this. Um, but at the time, he just won an election, huge majority. Voters thought he was okay. And so that scandal had no effects. But years later, after Iraq and after various other things, um, scandals did have an effect. And I think had the Formula One tobacco row happened, six or seven years later, it would have had a much bigger effect than it did back in 1997. So where are we today? I think we're in the beginnings of what might lead to an eventual public judgment that this is a sleazy government. But my guess is this particular row on its own isn't enough. If there are two or three more separate scandals, then the public will start to join the dots. And at that point, there might be a verdict. But my guess is we're months away from that happening.
1: Yes. I mean, you you could see at PMQs, couldn't you, that Boris Johnson wore the look of a man who sort of, didn't know exactly where this was going to end. And uh, and now we've got a couple of parliamentary committees uh, as well as the, uh, the Boardman kind of investigation. Um, Rishi Sunak is with you, YouGov. By some distance, the most popular politician in the country, I think his approval rate is 45%. Do you think he's damaged by this in any way? And, and what about Matt Hancock, who obviously had a torrid time at the start of this Pandemic, but is now up to twenty three percent approval. He's behind only Sunak, Boris Johnson, and Dominic Raab as the the, the the most popular cabinet minister. What does it? What does this mean right now for for those two?
2: If I were um, Richard Sunak or Matt Hancock, I'd be worried, but I wouldn't be suicidal. I mean, again, this these stories have some way to go before they're completely undermined. Where I think there might be an impact, and, and you mentioned uh, Prime Minister's questions this week, uh, you know, in Westminster, these things are noticed. And there are some things which are noticed intensely um, inside the Westminster bubble, but not yet noticed much outside. And I think we're at that stage where, you know, I think Boris Johnson's uh, frankly feeble performance of Prime Minister's questions, and song's very good performance, this does affect the morale of, of Tory and Labour MPs at Westminster before it necessarily has a big impact on the public outside. So I think Matt Hancock and Richard Sunak at the moment will be more worried about what's happening to their standing amongst their fellow MPs than they are about the uh, wider general public.
1: Will we ever solve this issue of lobbying? I mean, it's, you know, we're, we're, we're men with long memories. We remember David Cameron saying he was going to sort this out um, and, and take a hands-on approach to it. That was 11 years ago. I didn't I didn't realise he was going to take such a hands-on approach to it. Um, what do you think the end result of all of this
2: will be? Oh, I'm sure there will be... <clears throat> excuse me. I'm sure there will be... A, a rules will be tightened up. Mm. Um, but... Ultimately, um, what we really need is a return to the culture where there was a much clearer division between what happens inside Whitehall and Westminster and what happens outside it, and um, cabinet secretaries who who enforce this. Let me tell you my own very small story, which doesn't compare, but it does illustrate the point. Um, About 10 years ago, I applied... I was encouraged to apply to be chair of the um, UK Statistics Authority, the body that oversees the Office of National Statistics. Uh, and I got through to the final shortlist where I'd be interviewed by you know, senior people and they'd make the final decision. And suddenly, out of the blue, a few days before I was due to the interviews, I was told that if I was to get the job, I would have to give up any contact with YouGov, even though it was clear that... Um, I would be recused as chair of the Statistics Authority from anything which might involve yougov um, And and I withdrew. Um, and um, you know, there, uh, nothing remotely like what we're seeing with Greensill and um, David Cameron and, and, and civil servants. Um, you know, this simply wouldn't have happened 10 or 11 years ago, because Gus O'Donnell, was in the Cabinet Secretary, was fierce, you know, I know from my own and other people's stories, he was fierce about making sure that nothing like this would happen. And I'm afraid that under Jeremy Hayward, who rightly is admired in many ways and who, who's tragically died very young, Jeremy Hayward seems to have taken a different approach. And this slightly opened the door to this. So I think we need to go back to cabinet secretaries enforcing not just the, the written rules, but the culture of separation.
1: Um, let's turn to your piece in, in this week's New European now, which looks at the polling since Britain's agreement with the EU came into force in January and, and, and all of the stuff that has happened since. What are the key messages that, that we are taking from this polling?
2: I think there are two main messages. The first is there has clearly been a shift towards approval of Brexit since the beginning of the year, since the vaccine row um, uh, blew up. I mean, every tracking poll, every pollster, everywhere you come at it, they show a shift since January. However, the shift is not massive. It's somewhere around five, six, seven points, depending on which particular series you look at. Um, and the five or six, seven point shift from one side to the other, you know, that's quite big news. However, in polling terms, it's not very much. If you take two other recent um, polling series, one about the, um, how the government is doing in handling the coronavirus, that has shifted by 20 points so far this year. Yes. If you look at the way um, uh, Boris Johnson's own general approval rating and who'd make the best prime minister, his rating has dropped by 20 points. Over the last twelve months, so um, in polling terms, there has been a shift. It's a clear shift. We cannot deny it. I think it's an important shift, but it's not a massive shift. Why do you think
1: that the numbers for and against Brexit aren't jumping around to those in, in line with those numbers? Then the coronavirus numbers and the the, the government approval, uh, the Johnson approval numbers. Are, are, are people are bored with Brexit? I guess.
2: I think there's a lot of boredom with Brexit, and um, there have there are also, of course, been a number of stories about the damage being done. You know, when you look at the Northern Ireland Protocol, you look at the stories about you know, the fishery cannot export to Europe and delays at Dover and all the paperwork. You know, a lot of people have had their own personal experience of trying to order something online that comes from uh, across the channel, from France or Italy or Germany or wherever, and suddenly being... Uh, charged an extra bill because of, um, of of customs duties and VAT and so on, which weren't being uh, charged before um, while we were still in the EU or, or we were in the transition phase. So you know, there, there is sort of two-way news. But also, I think you're right. You know, most people do not follow these things incredibly closely. Let me make another point, is that you can, you can divide public opinion... Into three groups of somewhere around a third each, you know, 30, 35, 40% each. There's one block which is fiercely pro Brexit. There's another block which is fiercely anti Brexit. And those two blocks, very few people uh, move in or out of these blocks at the moment. Then in the middle, you've got the third block, <clears throat> the people who, you know, Voted in the referendum, and more, vote, more of them voted for, for Leave than Remain. But these are people who are not part of these fierce tribes on either side of the divide, and this is where the shift is happening. So, um, uh, so although there is this big middle group, there are probably more people who are fiercely pro and fiercely anti-Brexit than there are to say fiercely fans or opponents of Boris Johnson or, or, or supporters of the Conservative or Labour Party. You know, the core votes for the main parties are less than, if you like, the core votes for and against Brexit. Brexit.
1: There's a big difference, isn't there, between the question, were we right to leave the EU and the question, should we now rejoin the EU? What What is the polling telling us about what people think about those two cases and and I mean, pollsters have adapted the questions they're asking, haven't they, and the, the way they're measuring these things.
2: There's something interesting going on um, at the moment. It, it, it's a small effect, but a, but I think a pretty clear effect that the EU government have been asking for nearly five years now, ever since the referendum. In hindsight, will be right or wrong to vote to leave the EU. Now, um, uh, for the first few months after Brexit, they were getting a small majority saying we were right to leave, in other words, I'm re- repeating the referendum results. And then it started to shift. And for the last um, three years, um, pretty well every UGA poll has shown more people saying we were wrong to leave than right to leave. And last autumn, um, when there were still the negotiations going on about the final terms of withdrawal, there was quite a big lead, around 12 points, about fifty people saying fifty percent saying we were wrong to leave, thirty-eight right, and that gap has closed. There was one poll a couple of weeks ago where you YouGov showing slightly more people now saying we were right to leave. First time they found that for three years. A later poll showing a slight majority saying we were wrong to leave, but it's around level pegging. But when other pollsters like Kantar and Delta poll ask a slightly different question, how would you vote now? Um, they now find um, a small but reasonably consistent majority saying um, they vote not to rejoin. So my reading of this is that in the middle, there are some people that in a close race, even if not very many, enough to make a difference, who say, you know, I'd rather we hadn't left. It was probably a mistake. But now we're out. I'm not sure I want to go through the palaver of rejoining. And so that, if you like, that status quo group, they were sort of you know they were they thought we were wrong to leave, but now we're out, probably best to stay out um that's a pretty key group, even if at the moment at the moment, not a huge group and I think that's it's with one eye on that isn't
1: it that that we have labor in this kind of between two stools position or or even an elephant in the room position because. You know, Labour. Let's face it; are not making Brexit the top of their agenda in uh, on May the sixth. I'm not sure it's even on their agenda. What is going to be their um, their Brexit offer on on May the sixth, and what are the dangers in what they're doing for for Keir Starmer?
2: Well, their Brexit offer for May the sixth is absence. They're not talking about it. Yeah. Um And of course given that these are local elections, or, or in, in Scotland and Wales, they're, they're, for, they're for their uh, country's own um, parliaments. But you know, there's nobody going to be elected on May the 6th anywhere in Britain who has really much say over Brexit. They may have opinions. Nicholas Sturgeon in Scotland has a strong opinion. Sadiq Khan, the Labour candidate for mayor of London, uh, has strong views and, and expresses them. But you know, Brexit isn't on the ballot paper the Tories simply want to say, well, we got it done, and Labour doesn't want to talk about it at all, because Labour, you know, Keir Starmer is caught in it's a genuine dilemma between those Labour voters in London and the other big cities, and to the Labour Party membership, and they're overwhelmingly anti-Brexit, and the voters that Labour needs to win back in those so-called red wall seats, the, you know, the former industrial areas, the Midlands, the North, that used to return Labour MPs with massive majorities and many of them voted Conservative in 2019, Labour needs to win these back. And Labour fears that Brexit is pretty unpopular in these seats. Personally, I think Starmer is misreading the evidence um from these seats firstly the people who still vote Labour are still st- in those seats are strongly anti-Brexit and he risks offending them by saying nothing but more importantly and there's a lot of work being done on this it's quite clear that although a lot of the people who switched from Labour to Tory in these seats uh well, 18 months ago a lot of them pro Brexit. They're not pro Brexit because they're viscerally anti EU. It's because Brexit is a symbol of um, their belief that they've been left high and dry for the last thirty or forty years by you know, the London elite, as they would call them. You know, these these are places where the old you know, well-paid manual jobs and you know, in big industries, they have gone. The factories have closed, the mines have closed, the steelworks have closed, the shipyards have closed. Um, and th- these people are, on their families are victims of long-run economic forces, which have nothing to do, frankly, with, with Brussels yeah. or with the EU. But Brexit comes along, and it's a stick with which these people can beat um, the you know the 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 old um lib, smaller liberal elite in london so um if you like brexit is guilty by association not by anything that's um uh, or, or rather um, the eu is guilty by association rather than anything it's actually done and i think labor needs to get that message across because it's not you know kirsten would love not to say anything about europe right after the next election it's not possible you know mm. All the negotiations about Brexit, all the problems, they're still going to be up there bubbling. Labour can't afford not to have a policy. But we'll see how that um, unfolds.
1: And as you say, before we let you go, we are three weeks out now from May the 6th. There's not been a, a, a day like this, um, a non-general election day like this for, for, for many, many years, if ever. What, apart, I, think I think I'm pretty clear on who is going to be the Mayor of London, on May the seventh, what what else is there that is, is interesting for people to look out for?
2: Right. Well, the bankers are. Selina so can will win in London. Andy Burnham will win the mayor of Greater Manchester. Nicola Sturgeon will still be first minister in Scotland. Um, now, what to watch out for? Firstly, will Nicola Sturgeon lead a uh, essentially a, a minority or coalition government as she does now? The SNP didn't quite win a majority last time, but they have the vote of the Greens in the Scottish Parliament who are also pro-independence, so that allows her to govern fairly comfortably. She would like a pure SNP majority. Difficult because it's a proportional voting system which makes one-party majorities difficult, but she'd like that. Will she get it? Question number two. The West Midland. Andy Street, Conservative, former boss of John Lewis, won the majority um four years ago, will he hold it? Um I think the bookies are making him a pretty clear favorite. Um but if he does that's an area that Labour would dearly want to win back. And then the other three things I would cl- group them together. The mayoralty for West Yorkshire, a new mayoralty, hasn't been done before. Uh Tees Valley, mayoral election, uh Conservatives won narrowly last time, will they hold it? And the Hartlepool parliamentary by-election, can Labour hold that? Now, these are all three bang in the heart of that red wall area that used to be Labour big time. Um, and it's perfectly possible the Conservatives will hold the Tees Valley mayoralty, they'll win the West Yorkshire mayoralty, and they'll capture Hartlepool from... Um, Labour. If the Conservatives win all three, that is great news for them, terrible news for Labour. If Labour win all three, that shows that Labour is clawing its way back in these ridge wall areas. So those are the three that I think will have a particular interest. Um, I was going to say on the night, but there isn't much counting on the night. The day after, on, on the Friday when pretty well all the votes will be counted. That'll be what I'll be looking for most of all. It is going to be absolutely fascinating.
1: I've I've missed having it. I've missed having elections through all of this, and I'm I'm sure you have too. Thank you so much, Peter Kellner. Uh, you can read Peter's article about what British voters think of the EU now in this week's edition of the New European. Peter Kellner there. Um, his article is available in this week's New European. You can buy it at the news agent. You can subscribe to the New European at thenewEuropean.co. Dot UK slash save. For £10 a month, you get the printed and the e-editions every week. The first 200 people to subscribe get a signed copy of the latest uh, volume of Alistair Campbell's Very Good Diaries. Uh, we'll be back again for more talk about lobbying and another look ahead to May the 6th uh, shortly with Steve Richards. I am still uh, baffled by the lobbying scandal. I'm still baffled that David Cameron apparently hasn't um, watched any kind of Superman uh, films over the years and does not know the danger of breaking bread with a man called Lex. But, but what do you think about the lobbying scandal and where it should lead? We, we asked uh, New European readers a, a few of your responses here. John Lydon, I don't think it's that one, but John Lydon, uh, he quotes Robin Williams, the great Robin Williams, who said, politicians should wear sponsor jackets like NASCAR drivers, then we know who owns them. Uh Lorcan McAlinden. Uh, I've read out a, a lot of reader uh, things on this podcast over the years, and I've got to say, there's, I don't think there's one that I agree with more than this. Take the money out of politics by banning party and campaign donations. Publicly subsidised parties instead with a set budget for them to use during election cycles. Lorcan, yes, 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 I completely agree. Green Cycles on Twitter says we need an ethics committee with enforcement powers. Transparency alone is insufficient to prevent the revolving door between public life and private gain. And Giuseppe Boscherini says this should not be treated as an internal parliamentary manner matter but as a criminal investigation for the misappropriation of public funds and gail jones says to make this a criminal offence with assets seizeable and prison sentences to be imposed I, I think that the problem with some of this is that you know as james ball says in this week's edition of the new european no rules have actually been broken w- with this it, they are rules that we are going to need to bring in to to deal with it uh, tony harrell says there should be a five-year cool-off period, a ban on former cabinet ministers from lobbying. Lobbying should be for activists on their way up into politics. Again, Tony, I I couldn't agree more with the first bit of that. There must be a cooling-off period. Um, And uh, on Twitter, at SMTFHW, he describes himself as an Anglo-German ex-journalist. He says, what we need now is a proper public inquiry taking in the behaviour of current MPs and ministers. We won't get it, but that's what we need. Now, my second guest today will be familiar to you all from the podcast Rock and Roll Politics, but also from his work uh, down the years for The Guardian, The Statesman, The Spectator, Week in Westminster. There's so many. Um, Steve Richards. Steve, uh, welcome to the New European Podcast. Great to have you. you. Thank you very much. Uh, you've written a fascinating piece in this week's uh, New European about Ed Davies' attempts to drag the Lib Dems back into the spotlight. And we will come on to this uh, that in a moment. First of all, though, I mean, Cameron and Greensill and everything. What are the bits that pop out for you uh, from all this? What bits do you do you think we'll have wider cut through with the, the, the general public? I mean, I, I, mean I, am, I, knew that, um, I knew Dominic Cummings was keen to, to get rid of certain civil servants, but I had no idea that there was already a scheme where you could go on work experience with Greensill if you were a civil servant that even predated Dominic Cummings. That bit's extraordinary. What are the bits that pop out for you?
3: Well, I'll tell you what I think is most interesting about this and in a way has been overlooked This is a consequence of one party winning an election, after an election, after an election. And we are close in England, at least, to kind of electing conservative governments as almost as a matter of instinct, four in succession after 79. Uh, This is the fourth in a row now. Polls suggest there could be a fifth. For this simple reason, Imagine if, as used to happen, there were changes of government and say Labour had won in, take any of them, 2015. Ed Balls would have been Chancellor of the Exchequer and Cameron would have been the ex-Prime Minister. There's no way Cameron would have texted Ed Balls on behalf of some company. Um, And if he had done, Ed Balls would have got great pleasure not replying or telling him to get stuffed. But you have this weird situation where the same party wins election after election. We've now got lots of former prime ministers out there, who Tory prime ministers, who know these people in government as friends, who um, they were the powerful figure. Cameron was, when Sunak was a kind of junior Tory figure when Cameron was prime minister. And that is the context in which he felt, obviously, Uh, wrongly able to text these people, arrange meetings with Matt Hancock and all the rest of it. But it's only this tendency for one party to win virtually every election that produces this situation. Um, And I kind of think, you know, when people say, when the polls come out showing quite big Tory leads at the moment, because it's highly likely a fifth Tory government. A fifth. I mean, it is extraordinary. Uh, And, you know, and Tories agree with this. I remember when John Major uh, won in 1992, the fourth successive win in that sequence, he said to Chris Patton, sort of odd metaphor, we've stretched the envelope as far as it will go. And I think he knew he was in for a hellish time uh, and was not going to win a fifth. But at the moment, such is the mood in Parts of England, anyway, they could well win a fifth, and that means there will be other former cabinet ministers out and about who are good friends with whoever the current cabinet is then and that I think is a weird, weird situation, which doesn 't really happen in many other countries we 're very like America, but America seems to swap quite regularly you know mm. we 've got a Democrat in, we had Trump before before that was Obama, and so on so I think that is the wider context of this saga.
1: I wonder whether this ties in 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 some way to uh, in the public's perception ultimately with the idea that there was cronyism during the, the, the early procurement in the in the pandemic. But anyway, I'm sure you yeah, will find no, out about that.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean it, it, it all interconnects and that's why even though Cameron is a figure of the past, although very recent past and the consequences of his leadership are still being played out, uh it has topical resonance because of exactly the point you make. Yeah.
1: And I mean, we mentioned Cameron. I think we should look at his legacy. It is absolutely in tatters, isn't it? I mean, the austerity, Brexit, the, the botched welfare reform. Um, I, I think, you know, the, OK, the, the Scottish referendum in 2014 was one, but at, at what cost was was that one?
3: Yeah. And even then he made the fatal error. If you, do you remember? It's forgotten, but it, it, it's a major factor in the surge of the SNP. The morning after the referendum, he popped outside Downing Street at about eight in the morning, once the votes had been safely cast, to announce quite a major constitutional change, you know, English votes for only English MPs, and that's what triggered that day. Everyone told me at the time, I remember doing some interviews for BBC Scotland, they said all hell is breaking loose up here over what Cameron's done this morning. So he even got that wrong. And you're right, and then you can add other things, the NHS reforms, which are now having to be undone, the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, which is being undone. Um, Yeah, and and I'm afraid uh, too many people, if I can dare say this in the media, fell for it you know I, I heard it again and again on the BBC and amongst commentators here was this great moderniser taking the Tory party onto the centre ground and all this kind of stuff. and it was all it was all you know it was a charade that side of it if you follow the policies um he was always out Thatchering Thatcher actually
1: yes that's right he he, he certainly was um... Do you think Labour are? What do you think is the outcome of, of all of this? And do you think Labour are right now to be focusing on Nigel Boardman, who is going to lead the the government's review into lobbying? But of course, is the son of a, a former Conservative cabinet minister. Nigel Boardman himself got a job at the new at the uh, British Museum from from David Cameron, and uh, and then of course he he was linked to the to, to what many saw as a, a whitewashed. Uh, verdicts on on uh, procurement in the in the early days of the pandemic is, is this are we just are we just going to get another whitewash report and then this will be forgotten about or do you suspect that it's going to run a, little bit, a bit longer
3: I think it's going to run on a bit longer whether as a result of this so-called independent inquiry or not uh, I don't know uh, I think there is good cause for skepticism about an inquiry commissioned by Downing Street, choosing the person to uh, do it, and it's all going to be done behind closed doors. But some of the select committees are going to be pursuing this. Yes. Um, The newspapers are. So broadly, uh, this is fertile terrain for Labour. As we've just been talking about, this is the fourth successive Conservative term. And uh, so-called sleaze work very effectively for Tony Blair in the run-up to 97. Incidentally, he now regrets doing that, he has said, um, because they very quickly then got tarred with the same brush. But um, this is, you you can see Keir Starmer, who's had a troubled period, uh, was absolutely at his best at Prime Minister's questions because this is terrain which is difficult for a government when they've been in power for so long. So they're right to go for it. I, you know, I'm sure you. I, well, I know you've discussed this in other podcasts. They're wrong to ignore other issues like Brexit and pretend it doesn't exist. But this is fertile terrain for Labour.
1: Yes, they do seem they do seem happy. I mean, the the the, the NHS one percent pay rise uh, was is their territory, and this seems very much their territory um, as well. We do need some tighter rules about lobbying, don't we? Do we need a, I I was just, before you you came on, I was just reading out some things that the readers had, uh, that our readers had suggested, a a 10-year cooling-off period for ex-ministers or a five-year cooling-off period for ex-ministers. What do you think are the practical things that should come out of this, even if they don't?
3: Well, I think there is, uh, I think Gordon Brown said there should be a five-year cutoff. Um, and that's, that's fine. But uh, as I said, I'm more interested in that broader context because you cannot stop and shouldn't stop, um, friends meeting up at parties or whatever, which is, and, and the problem if you just elect the same party all the time, and this is, you know, it would, it's the same with Labour. They, they struggled after three terms, but this is the fourth term for the second time since 79. And it's quite hard to, Regulate. I mean, are you saying to people like Cameron, you really mustn't mix with ministers um, who are friends of yours, and, and and that is difficult. And the moment you say no, of course not, of course he can mix with them. Well, in conversation, <laughs> you might in passing say something. So it's hard to do. But I think there will be something. There's a sort of mood about something must be done. Um, and it clearly, by the way, is not mi- just ministers, but, uh, as you were saying at the beginning, civil servants as well. I had no idea there was this job share going on. <laughs> um, not job share, but two jobs. Uh, <laughs> I had no idea. And it, was, it and, you know, it's interesting speaking to other, uh, you know, former civil servants. They didn't know it went on either. So, I, uh, you know, think light is being shone upon, you know, those in government, either ministers or officials. Uh, and, and I think there will be consequences.
1: Well, I certainly uh, I certainly hope so. Let, let's turn to your fascinating piece, another fascinating piece by you in, in this week's New European. You begin that piece quite rightly by saying the Lib Dems are getting some national attention for the first time since the last... Uh, election uh, where they got national attention in a very negative way let's just run through why they're getting this attention now and, and why they have been in danger of drifting into complete obscurity
3: yeah well the obscurity was just there and when you've only got 11 MPs in a parliament where the government has a huge majority uh, irrelevance becomes a, a near fatal issue for a party And when you've got the SNP in third place in the House of Commons, that becomes an even more acute danger. Um, But relevance can be acquired for smaller parties through issues. Uh, The Iraq war did it for Charles Kennedy when he was leader of the Lib Dems at a point where Labour had a huge majority. And to some extent, the pandemic has given attention to the Lib Dems and their leader, Ed Davey, for the first time, because he has been able to strike this, in inverted commas, liberal approach to some of the constraints, most specifically the vaccine passports. And when you have unqualified opposition, uh, although personally I think there is a case for vaccine passports, indeed a liberal case for it, but that doesn't matter. It's a distinctive argument at a point where Keir Starmer is, being convoluted, and Boris Johnson is sort of being all over the place, instinctively libertarian, but wants to open up and therefore tentatively kind of advocates these passports. He has space for clarity and coherence, because you can argue it's a liberal small-l position to take. And that is a lifeline for a small party and a leader who, frankly, most of the public won't even know who he is and won't know he leads the Lib Dems. And I've noticed he's been appearing on Newsnight, Channel 4 News, and other outlets um, with a distinct position. And it doesn't matter if the position is flawed, if it's credible. And it is credible and it is distinct. And uh, it it gives them a bit of life when they're in a very, very dangerous position politically.
1: Is it a slightly dangerous game that he's playing now? I mean, I I know you mentioned this and I, I, I... The, the Spectator magazine, which is for people who don't read the Spectator, is is, is a sort of right of centre or right wing uh, periodical. They said last month that he was the new opposition. He there was a very big piece that he wrote in the Daily Telegraph, which was extremely well received by Daily Telegraph readers. Is he playing a, a dangerous game by being in alliance with these? right-wing libertarians in in the media and in the Conservative Party and you know does it does it run a risk of blowing up in his face like with Joe Swinson and Article 50 revoking Article 50 because all the opinion polls seem to suggest to me that an overwhelming majority of voters do support passports and they do support the lockdown constraints that we've had so far.
3: Yeah and I put that in the piece Um, that there are flaws in his position and they are two of them he's in alliance with right-wing uh, libertarians and he's against majority opinion and if this was a party you know hoping to form the next government uh, th- that they would be huge huge issues but they're not they're a party just trying to breathe again after the trauma of december 2019 and the other traumas that preceded that and given that um I think he's uh in the space in a sensible space for him um and he can put forward arguments about why he's doing this, which are as i say credible enough and go here it doesn't look opportunistic because you can put a liberal case for why he's doing it um i mean, I do agree with you uh you know that he shouldn't there are valid concerns about his allies in this. And the substance of what he's arguing, but mm-hmm. it is a distinct case, and for a party which is just, as I say, in danger of total irrelevance, that's gold dust.
1: It is. I, I mean, it's it's a it's a desperate attempt at, for, for relevance, isn't it? Whether it, you know whether it's justifiable um, or, or not.
3: One of the well, th- I, I assume I don't know, uh, but I assume he believes it. Yes. Uh, so in that sense, um, it's it's not desperate, but their 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 situation is desperate. Yes. Uh, and so, in in that sense, I assume he was pleased when the Spectator called him the new opposition, uh, the leader of the new opposition, or whatever the term was, um, even if it comes from a source like that. But more broadly, I argue in that piece if they want to get back onto the pitch, so to speak. Um, the nearest parallel is Paddy Ashdown in 1992 you know he had a few more MPs than they've got at the moment but he decided that the broad thrust of their position would be to work with Tony Blair's Labour Party and it worked for them they got a huge increase in seats in 97 when they could have been wiped out because Blair's pitch was so Close to what theirs might have been, um, they could have just been again doomed to irrelevance, that fatal place in politics. Uh, so there, there's a kind of model for them to follow. Uh, in the longer term, uh, the situation, the parallels are never precise in politics, but that's that's the nearest, it seems to me, for them.
1: Is May the 6th too soon for them to make any sort of um, any sort of inroads? And and if if it's not, what kind of inroads do you expect them to make? What would a good May the 6th look like for the Lib Dems?
3: I'd be surprised if they make uh, many inroads. Mm. I think the focus on May the 6th will be Scotland, and there it will be about the SNP uh, and whether they've got this overall majority, the Hartlepool by-election, and that will be between Labour and the Conservatives. And the mayoral contest, uh, obviously Labour are going to win London, but the one in Birmingham uh, is interesting, currently Tory held, um, uh, whether Labour can gain that or not. So uh, again, and this is what happens when you get wiped out, um, the the, the main focus will be SNP and these Tory Labour battles in parts of England.
1: Yes, it's it's uh, I mean, it's a holding position for 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 Ed Davey, I guess uh, on a wider note, one of the, the fascinating things in your piece was when you talk about these, those kind of two conflicting paths that, that the Lib Dems have followed, um, mainly over financial policy, but also I think about whether they really are, a you know, a bang in the centre party or whether they are a left of centre party. Um, How how do you sum that up? Where is Ed Davey leading them, apart from on this mission to oppose vaccine passports?
3: Well, it's a good good question, because, I mean, all parties are broad churches, but this divide is such a big divide between those small-l economic liberals who found it very ideologically straightforward to work with David Cameron and George Osborne on an economic policy uh, measure just objectively to the right of Margaret Thatcher's, you know, real-term spending cuts, austerity and so on. And people like uh, Nick Clegg, Danny Alexander, David Laws uh, were largely at ease with that, it seems to me. And, be, and in fairness, they are economic liberals. They will claim that they come from that sort of Gladstonian wing of the Liberal Party, sound money the orange book liberals as they then became known but they are miles away from the sort of social democrat wing of which I would include actually Ashdown definitely Charles Kennedy uh, definitely David Steele those two were ferocious opponents of the coalition uh, from a kind of social democratic perspective and they go back they you know tend to quote Beveridge Lloyd George who uh, was not only a radical chancellor but in the sort of depression of the late 20s was advocating a kind of fiscal stimulus well to the left of ramsey MacDonald, who mm-hmm. was the labour prime minister now that is a completely different way of doing things and it seems to me it, it lands them in so much trouble that they never really resolve that divide and they haven't had a huge debate about what happened in that coalition and why but i think looking ahead It's clear, I mean, I think Davy has already said he couldn't work with the Conservatives at the moment. It would be ridiculous with Brexit and all the other things if they claim, if he claimed they could. So the only other path is that one Ashdown took, which is to work more closely with Labour. I don't know whether he's going to try and do that, whether Starmer will be interested given their numerical weakness. But that is the route, it seems to me, available to them. But then he does need to address okay well what, what were you up to in that coalition when with some enthusiasm you endorsed george osborne's economic policies and as you mentioned earlier some of the public service reforms and and, and that's tricky for them it seems to me
1: it is going to be really interesting to see which way they tack next and uh, and and what happens to smaller parties in general um, I think the SNP, the SNP uh, visibility at PMQs is, it, 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 you know, it's so damaging, isn't it? Steve, we will talk again, no doubt. Um, uh, it's really great to, to, to have you on. Steve Richards's fascinating piece on Ed Davey vaccine passports, where the Lib Dems turn next, is available in this week's edition of The New European uh, at newsstands now or the www.theneweuropean.co.uk slash save. For £10, you get the printed and e-edition uh, every week and the first 200 subscribers get a copy of Alistair Campbell's new volume of Diaries. And we'll be back with the Hall of Shame. And finally, we stop off at the Hall of Shame. It's our new home for rubbish politicians, for political blather, for things that just annoy me, generally let's start with James Dyson he says Brexit gave us an independence of spirit and in his case it was an independence of spirit which led him to move his head office to Singapore we're seeing quite a lot of this independence of spirit from other businesses post-Brexit aren't we Uh, Boris Johnson now I don't know which is more ridiculous is it his plan to save the union which is he's calling Project Love Or is it that he said that he wants to be the weathered father of the nation? The weathered father of the nation. What does that mean? Well, let's be honest. By projecting his love, Boris Johnson has fathered quite a bit of the nation already, and he's probably done it in all weathers. He's also said he wants to be a unifier who no longer divides for political gain. And, yeah, I mean, that's similar to being a cat burglar who announces he no longer wants to be a cat burglar after he's made 10 million quid from fencing all the jewels that he stole. Alack. It's Anne Widdecombe Corner, and I know many of you enjoy our weekly trawl through Anne Widdecombe's bonkers column in the Bonkers Daily Express. This week, she's turned her attention to the uh, the, the sad news of the week, um, and we begin. Yes, Boris's hair is amusing. No, it isn't, Anne. But it jarred horribly when he was outside Downing Street, giving a well-worded tribute to the Duke of Edinburgh. There are occasions to look dignified, and this was one of them. On such occasions, Carrie should be standing by the door with a comb. That's what Anne thinks. I think that Boris Johnson is 56 years old, and as the weathered father of the nation, I think he can use his own weathered comb to comb his own weathered hair. Anne continues, well done to the BBC, and shame on those who've complained about the extent of the coverage of the life and death of the Duke of Edinburgh. As one who regularly scorns the hideous output of tawdry, profane, sex-obsessed, celebrity-worshipping, left-wing, anti-Brexit, pro-woke-rot, I regarded last Friday's sustained broadcast as having justified my entire licence fee for the year. Well... I don't know what we need to do to, to keep Anne happy and keep her paying her licence fee for, for, the, for next year. Maybe we need to persuade more royal figures to car kit in a sort of Royal Logan's run, um, just so we can keep Anne in front of the telly box. It, it must be said that the wall-to-wall coverage um, delighted Anne, but it didn't delight some uh, viewers. BBC One was down 6% last Friday on the previous Friday. ITV was down 60%. Uh, on the previous Friday, BBC2 down 65%, Channel 4 down 8.5%, and the most watched TV show on the day that Prince Philip died was Gogglebox, with 4.2 million viewers. Um, I hate to lower the tone towards the end of this podcast because... Oliver Dowden and Andrew Davis are going in the Hall of Shame. And it's because of a prank notice that appeared on the Town Hall of Grossmont in Monmouthshire. And it kind of provides the last word on the flag-hugging stuff we talked about on this podcast a couple of weeks back. Now, this prank announcement uh, that appeared on the Town Hall, um, there were English and Welsh versions side by side. The English version said... In accordance with the directive of the Minister of Culture, the Right Honourable Oliver Dowden, notice is hereby given that a flagpole will be erected on Grosmont Town Hall, uh, such that the flag of the Union can be flown on a daily basis. The flag will be raised for the first time on St George's Day, April 23rd, 2021, by the leader of the Conservative Party in Wales, the Right Honourable Andrew R.T. Davies. And there was a Welsh version next to it. And this is the English translation of the Welsh version. Has there ever been a more laughable minister than the Right Honourable Oliver Dowden? A flagpole at the town hall, and it gets after. I would like to invite the Right Honourable Andrew R.T. Davis to Grossmont on St George's Day, April the 23rd, so we can push the Union Jack Banner into his arsehole, and so say all of us. And let's end with Nigel Farage, who has found a new money-making lease. If you send Nigel £75, he will read out a video greeting to you. And for everyone who enjoys Bart Simpson's phone calls to Moe's bar, that has led to this.
3: Happy birthday, Hugh Janus. I've heard you're a massive fan.
1: Well, I have no more to add. That was the new European podcast with Steve Anglesey. My thanks to Peter Kellner and to Steve Richards. Please remember to rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice. Positive reviews mean a lot to me and they mean a lot to this podcast. You can subscribe to The New European at the neweuropean.co.uk slash save. For £10 a month, you get the printed and the e edition every week. And the first 200 to subscribe will also get a signed copy of the latest volume of Alistair Campbell's excellent diaries. You can join our Facebook readers group. You can follow The New European on Twitter at The New European. You can follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E, S-E-Y, Mr. Campbell, Play your bagpipes.
3: Here you go.